The last 20 years have seen an explosion of cool tech, shiny digital apps, and progressive business models, but not all have migrated successfully to traditional banking. Have we lingered too long in the glittering halls of cutting edge? Have we forgotten the real goals of reliable, trustworthy, and functional banking? Is it time to find the real magic in building a bank that works? Welcome to Functional Banking Magic, a podcast that aims to tell the stories of the magic in a bank that works. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Banking Magic. As always, I am Liz Lumley, Deputy Editor of The Banker, and we're taking a little break from our uh, normal talk about uh, innovation within banks and specifically our 2023 topic of bank fintech partnerships. And we're going to have a a conversation here with a former banker, and we're going to be talking about finding your ethical moral compass. So today I'm speaking to Sean Hayes. He's the author of a book called The Gray Choice. Um, he pled guilty to participating in a scheme to defraud XL Bank and to profit from illegal insider loans and was sentenced to federal prison in 2018. So we're going to talk about uh, the cost of his crimes to his personal life and his, his professional life and how he sort of sees ethical and unethical business practices today um, and, and, and going forward in that sort of what he calls the gray areas of business decision making. Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be on your show and I look forward to your audience uh, hopefully getting back to you with many questions after our interview. Wonderful. So, you know, it's interesting whenever we see stories about you know, uh, immoral or, or criminal behavior emanating from the banking industry, and especially stories uh, that come from the the sort of 2008-2009 era of the banking crisis. You, you often hear uh, media and commentators talk about that no one ever spent any time in prison over some of, some of these crimes. Yeah. However, you did. You spent 37 months in federal prison. Why don't you update our audience a little bit about how you ended up there? Absolutely. And I, and I will say, I've had many people say to me, you're the only banker I know who went to prison and, um, and, 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 it's, and I deserve to go. And uh, what had happened was I had started a company and grew it 80 fold. And it was interesting in, uh, in your uh, query of questions about the way the go-go world we're in today of finance mm. and, and commercial banking, how it is evolving and changing. And that's the kind of culture I had created over a 15 year period and we sold out. And I spent four years with a very large institution, one of the top 10 largest in the country that I'd sold to. And I lost what I call my street sense. That was one thing, but I'll come to my moral compass in a little bit, what got me in prison. Mm. But uh, towards the end of that, I bought a bank. And in the US, if you own more than 25% of an institution, you virtually can't do any business with yourself. And my crime was, and as I believe most crimes are driven by fear or greed, and my crime was driven by fear and greed. Mm -hmm. I had lost tens of millions of dollars um, in early 08 and through 09. And um, I structured a transaction that was very profitable for a bank that I owned over 50% of. And at the end of it, the crime in it was we were buying loans, non-performing loans from other banks huge pools of them. And I'd watch people do this in the late 80s and early 90s and make tens of millions of dollars. Mm. But one of the one, a partnership that I was involved in had a loan at one of the banks that was performing, but they wanted rid of it because of the other borrower. And I allowed that to be included. Thus, I benefited myself. 
I defrauded the bank, uh, you know, the, the, um, the bank. And I knew when I did it, and I think this is so important. I knew when I did it, it was a crime. Mm. Not only that, I justified it. And I think, and, and we all justify our decisions, good or bad. I justified it based on the fact that I wasn't taking money. So I wasn't stealing in my own mind. And um, the transaction unraveled and not, as, as we jokingly say here uh, in the States, when you rob a 7-Eleven, they call the police and they look for you immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, this took years to unravel. And in uh, the cost, uh, I, I say in the book, but I, I say this freely, it cost me my family. Uh, I'm estranged from many of my children. It, I ended up divorced. I, um, it cost me uh, my financial success, cost me my freedom. I went to prison and it cost me dozens of friendships. So the cost, in my opinion, was horrific. And, um, and I got there, and this is a long answer to your question, but I think it's so important to your audience to understand this. 95%, 99% of people don't get up and say, I'm going to commit a crime. Mm. But I can go back to my, my beginning year banking, which was actually uh, 41 years ago next month. And early on, all the management trainees went into a room and a consultant came in and gave us a test. And I was in the front row and uh, the proctor looked down at my answer and he stopped everyone. He said, oh, everyone has to answer question one, yes. Well, I immediately became defensive. And I said, well, I haven't stolen anything from here. I'd been there maybe three or four weeks. And he looked down at me and he said, you will. (laughs) A few months later, a a banker was about 10 years older and I was in his department said, you're new to town. My girlfriend has a friend, let's go to a baseball game. And we went. And it came to the end of the evening and uh, I said, how much do you? And he said, $90. And I gave him cash and he took out a bank credit card and paid for it. Therein begins the beginning of where these things happen. And I mm-hmm. look at Cyber Monday today and there's very few people who work for someone that don't shop on Cyber Monday and you're taking something. And so my, my belief, and this is what happens to me, is it's like you take a plane from Los Angeles and you're going to Washington, D.C., and you're off by one degree, given the amount of time you're in the air, the speed you're traveling, and the distance you end up in New York City. And that's what happened to me. Mm. So it's that sort of small, small actions that compound over time. Right. You, you mentioned um, about today's world, and, and I'll just jump to that and, and say this. I uh, created a culture and we had the best lawyer. This is what it was my own company, the one I sold that we took public and sold. And our culture was don't ever tell me no. <laughs> tell me how we can do what we want to do legally, and then we'll see if it's worth the aggravation. So when you've been in a culture like that for decades, you can see where once and what was happening to me in 08 and 09, again, not justifying it, but the fear of losing everything, which I was doing daily, and the greed of we do this transaction and we make so much money that, it, and since I own 54%, it benefited me. But that one little piece of, I had to get one thing done, I couldn't get done except break a law. And that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. So I want to get into further on our conversation about the sort of redefining your ethical moral compass after after uh, the, this uh, your your uh, your conviction and your stint in prison. But I really have to ask, what what was prison like? When you asked me earlier, and I said I was about the only person that anyone knew in banking who went to prison, and and there's things going on now that I believe people should go to prison for, and we'll maybe cover that later. <laughs> but I had the most unique experience 
because of my 37 months and, and a lot of your listeners, one, I hope they never know anybody who goes through what I did in two won't understand the system, but I spent 15 months in a County jail. Mm-hmm. And that is where the, the federal government here holds people. Most people just re- go, they go to court, they plead guilty and they go to, uh, in my case, a camp. But the way my uh, situation unfolded, I got to spend 15 months in a county jail. And that's literally where a third of the prisoners are local people, a third of the prisoners are state people, and a third are federal. It was built for 24 men, 36 lived in there, which meant someone slept on the floor. Mm. It's about six feet by 10 feet with a commode, a sink, and a little desk. So you can't imagine what that's like. And every day you didn't ever sit down to eat because you had to be prepared one to move and two to fight. So that's an experience that I don't think you'll find another guest that's been a white collar criminal Mm. have experienced. I did 10 months, well, about ended up being 12 before I was done in a camp uh, next to a prison that John Gotti and Manuel Noriega served in. And then I spent 10 months in, in one in Florida. And I, I say the second prison was a bad summer camp that when your parents picked it when you were a child, the brochure was 20 years old. The third place was a, was a college fraternity house without girls. <laughs> but um, I can tell you, um, and, and the government doesn't want you to know this, but the places I were, if there were 200 men, there were 400 cell phones. There were people who ran businesses out of the prison. You could order off of any fast food menu in the community about 10 miles away and it would show up that night for you. And uh, corruption was unbelievable. So uh, that's the system in this country. So you, you had the full gamut of experiences then. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. And I will say one thing, saw a lot of violence but I never saw any sexual impropriety. You know, the movies and and, and Mm -hmm. Hollywood tends to magnify that. That wasn't part of it, but uh, greed. And uh, I'd never seen uh, marijuana until I went to prison. Uh, Drugs, alcohol, you could get, when they said, do you want a beer? Do they mean, do you want a bottle or a can? Mm -hmm. So things like that, that you wouldn't expect were very prevalent. But I don't want anybody to experience it. <laughs> so moving on, moving on to your book. Now, it's called The Gray Choice, um, and it says it's, it talks about life's ethical gray areas. What, it, what does that mean exactly, life's ethical gray areas? As I started out and I said, we create a culture in my own company of let's push. And um, in the early 90s, after the savings and loans, saving loan failure and the, and the real estate collapse here from the tax law changes, the government didn't come out with a law, but they came out with regulations of lending 100% on real estate transactions. Mm. And we had a niche that financed foreclosure, um, financing, and in, in the Midwest, in Missouri in particular, um, filing, foreclosure, filing, filing a foreclosure and getting the property took 28 days. It was very lucrative. Mm. But the government regulation said you can't make a loan for 100%. But we did. And we, and we set up a model, this is before the internet, and we proved that um, not only were we taking less risk, that one third of our loan, all of these loans paid off in 92 days on average, and that one third of them, the property sold, but two thirds were financed by other banks at 25 to 50% more dollars than we'd finance at the courthouse steps because you have two hours to come up with the money. So you can't get an appraisal. You just can't underwrite it the way the government wanted. But that was in the gray. Mm. And we fought with them for years, never had a problem. 
we never lost any money. In fact, it was very lucrative. But that was just one of those steps where, you know, you start going, you progress, and it gets easier and easier to make those kind of decisions. It's no mm-hmm. different than speeding. Mm-hmm. If the speed limit's 65 and you're going 70, well, that's okay. Then you go 80, and that may not be okay. And at 85, you're going to get a speeding ticket. And it's the same kind of progression that, unfortunately, I did. Mm. So you mentioned earlier that when you were when you were working, you you knew you were committing a crime when you were yeah. when you just. So, I mean, in terms of redefining your ethical moral compass, do you think is it because you got caught? Do you think, and if you hadn't got caught, that you would st- you would still be still be doing what you were doing a few years ago? The answer is yes. Because I had crossed, and you know, I always say you make money in business in the gray, but you can't cross the line. And I crossed the line. And once I did cross the line and ended up being a crime, I would have done something else stupid again because I would have gotten away with it. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely, where it changed my thinking is I remember we sat and and I wasn't a member of the audit committee, but I attended frequently and we talked about gift limits. And originally it was $100 and then it was $250. If I were doing it today, it would be zero Mm -hmm. because once you take anything, it just gets easier and easier. And we're watching this unfold in a very, very horrible way in the Wall Street Journal and in the media now with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm. And, you know, once you take one little thing, it's easier to take a little bigger thing, a little bigger thing, a little bigger thing. And, um, And I would just, you know, have a policy now that none of those things are acceptable. Mm-hmm. And there are very few companies, and I've done business with thousands in my life, that ever had policies that strict. But I can tell you the ones that did have cultures that are so ethically sound that they're not going to ever have the kind of problem I did. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of my lessons. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads me to my next question, because, I mean, at the end of the day, we are personally responsible for our choices. But then, of course, we, we also work within a structure. And I've worked for a number of different companies in, in my, my career. And some are, you know, in terms of, be, well, now this is post-COVID being in the office. But different, there are different, you know, structures. There's different rules. There's different, some are stricter than others. Do you think, I mean, how much of the structure of the banking industry that you worked in kind of lent itself to this behavior? Do you think, you know, would, if you had had a stricter, more ethical structure around you and, and, and have things changed at all? Do you think that thing, uh, your, your life would have turned out differently? Absolutely. In the 15 years that I ran a public company and we grew 80 fold, I had a board. I was, we, we had women and African-Americans before any company did in the Midwest. And we had in, 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 in big numbers, but I had four people one man and, and um, I mean, one woman and, 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 um, and three men that I met with at least a couple of times a month that helped me unbelievably accountable. Mm-hmm. And that was so good. And that's one of the things when you're in a big company, you have all kinds of rules, but you know, there's so many people, it's hard to hold people accountable. And I went to that. And then I went back to a small company that I owned over half of, and I had no one. And I didn't have the people around me I had. And so it got easier. And then you throw in 2008 and 9 in a financial collapse. And it just got very easy. So I think structure is so important. And, and, and I think having been through what I've been through, and it's certainly uh, not worth the cost, someone might think it is, 
but that structure has to be so tight. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it just has to. And, and, and we're in my mind in a whole nother generation of banking. I, I, was, I was a disgrace in my family, jokingly, because everyone were lawyers, because I went into banking. And the reason why I went in is I had a professor in the fall of 1981. I had three preferential interviews. He goes, I want you to interview with a bank. And I said, why? He said, the business is changing. And I talk about this in the book. Mm. And I was really the first generation of where bankers focused on sales Mm -hmm. before they were order takers. And that's why we grew so fast is I went to work for a large bank that was very conservative, but very sales focused. And so you had the underwriting under control, but you were out selling. And that's a, that's a child in my mind, certainly of the eighties and most likely a little bit of the, of the seventies, but looking now, and, and I, and I'll say Wells Fargo because they're constantly in regulatory trouble yep. for their selling practices. And that was the Wells Fargo I knew in the 80s and 90s just had an unbelievable culture. But as sales has permeated, become the way of life, they just seem to be in trouble every two or three years for fraudulent sales practices. Mm. And that tells me that you just have to really keep your culture ethically tight. Mm. No, I have a few a few stories of banks I know as well about uh, about practices and on on that level. But it, it's interesting because I spent a lot ta- a lot of time in my career working with fintech companies, so startup companies in the financial services space, and there was always this criticism or looking at the banking industry as a whole globally is, is highly regulated. And this idea that it's very difficult to innovate in a bank because they have this structure and they're very strict and for a lot of reasons. And startup companies are supposed to be that Silicon Valley type mold where you grow at any cost. And regulations are something to kind of ignore until someone comes after you for them. Yes, I mean, you're right. Yeah. And it's in your mind, that culture is, is not sustainable long term. No. No. And, and by the way, I very much believe you have to have innovation in every industry. And I love what we've seen it with the new startups and the innovation. And, and um, But over time, it's going to bite you. That's the one thing about this business, because you have the economic cycles. And, uh, and in this country, and it's a worldwide problem, but we've seen uh, three, what I consider very large banks fail mm. for the most, co- you know, um, my bank, we didn't make a loan with a fixed rate over three years. We didn't buy a bond with a maturity of over five years. So we, we knew we had short money. So we lent short. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a classic failure is lending long and borrowing short. And we watched that happen. And then you look at the ethical behavior and I'll pick on Republic, First Republic. Mm-hmm. But they they knew a year ago, and you know this, you've been in the finance, mm-hmm. that they had a, a problem if rates went up. Yep. Yet they watched them go up. And I understand they, they, they can't keep them from going up. And then they paid themselves bonuses right before <laughs> they really failed. I, know. I mean, that to me is just ethically, I, I did a lot of things wrong and I went to prison. I never would have done that because that just, that's the most blatant thing. I mean, that's the easiest thing to regulate. I'm not talking about a crime like mine that was hard to figure out. I'm talking about it's criminal to do what they did. Mm. And um, so as you're pushing as, as these startups, and, and I, by the way, I think that the industry is so much better. They're doing all these things, which I think have to be done, and they're great. But over time, as, as credit risk, and now we see interest rate risk, and things like that shift, 
then you're going to have problems. And, and, I, and there's a lot of banks right now that have problems in this country um, because they've been lazy um, in managing interest rate risk. Mm. And then I, I, I did a, I, an interview the other day and I gave a story of a guy that I know who makes a half million dollars a year and he bought a lot to build a house on from any, a small bank financed it. And uh, a year ago, they said, whenever you're ready to build, we'll lend you the money. So he went to him about a month ago and they said, uh, we can't lend you the money because we're focusing on deposits. And I call that the law of unintended consequences because my theory of regulators are they're lazy. They're behind the curve. They're regulating what happened yesterday. They're not thinking what's gonna to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And so they came out and said, all you small banks have liquidity issues because we've seen runs on banks. You better focus on deposits. They didn't say don't make loans. You and I both know that. Mm -hmm. But the first thing that bankers do not the ones you know that push the envelope, but the other ones do, is they quit making loans because they know that the government's going to be on them for that. So they don't do it. They don't make a good loan to a great credit because they, they think they're not supposed to do anything because they're going to focus on deposits and that contracts the economy. And that's why I think we're in for you know a period of slow, prolonged slow growth mm. because the regulators should have been on core deposits and interest rate risks a year ago or more when rates started to go up or when they thought they were going to go yeah, up. I know, I agree. Especially we all knew with the quantitative easing with COVID that this was going to happen. This was Yeah, this, you, you can't. This wasn't a you can't. You hit the nail on the head <laughs> and you can't print trillions of dollars <laughs> or pounds or, or whatever and think that someday you don't have inflation. I agree with you. I Just the, the, the lack of uh, foresight from so, some bankers it just is rather surprising to me. <laughs> but yeah, and, and, and the regulators, you know, don't think ahead. And, and you got, you know, the brightest people in my world, did, you know, my, my, my family were lawyers. They didn't become judges. And the brightest people I know in banking didn't become regulators. <laughs> and so, you know, you look at the you look at those two gene pools and then you wonder why we're where we are. Hopefully someday we'll have a we'll have a better banking industry. Yeah. There are a lot of people It'll... working on it. Sean, thank you so much for talking with me. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening to Functional Banking Magic, which runs monthly out of The Banker. You can listen to this podcast on thebanker.com, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you would like to be a guest on Functional Banking Magic, you can contact Liz Lumley at elizabeth.lumley at ft.com.